This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of the North Church, as part of the 2023 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. All right, everybody. How you doing? Good. Are you awake? <laughs> Feeling good? All right, no. At least somebody's honest over here. Okay. So today we are going to do word training, all right? So evangelism training yesterday. Today I'm going to attempt to give you a little bit of training in the word, all right? So I'm very excited to teach this uh, staff. We, we love the Bible. We love to teach the Bible. We love to help college students especially understand and apply the Bible. Um, so that is going to be my intent. So I want everybody's attention just for a brief moment. I'm going to ask you a question. Who in here feels like, man, I could, I could teach any Bible study, any moment, on any text in the Bible? Raise your hand. Okay? Uh, raise your hand if you feel like you have learned everything you can about the Bible at this point, if you have arrived. No hands. Staff? Team leaders? Room leaders? Anybody? Anybody think they just, they've got it all figured out? Okay, why do you think I'm asking this silly rhetorical question? What do you think? No one can answer it. Nobody can answer it. All right. What, what would be a good posture to come into these trainings with? Humility. Humility, right? I don't care if you're a staff. I don't care if you're a team leader. I don't care if this is your first time ever reading the Bible. I want us to approach God's Word continually with a humble heart, knowing and expecting God to always show up and teach me something. So I, I don't think I've got like the magic bullet. I don't think I've got like infinite wisdom over here. Uh, but I'm going to try to teach you God's word today. And I really do believe that God has something for you to hear from his word. Um, so my goal today is to kind of uh, two-part. I want to explain what is the Bible, not like the philosophical kind of like you know, we have all these scrolls and all these things, and this validates this and this. That's not the approach I want to take today. But just what is the Bible, and then why should we actually meditate on it every day? Why should you feast upon God's Word every day? So that's, that's my aim. And the reason I want to help you all understand what is the Bible is so many <coughs> Christians, so many people in the world can't even explain what the, what the book is trying to say. They can't even explain the purpose of it. They can't even explain the, the central message of it. And my goal is, I, I really think you can walk away today, not just with head knowledge, but a true understanding of what does God's word say? What is God trying to accomplish in his word? Okay, so I, that's my prayer. I've been praying for you all that that would happen. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, we come before you, and we ask, God, we ask that you would show up, Lord. That you would open our eyes to see the glory in your word. God, that we would behold your son more and more. Father, would you help me to teach things that are true in accordance with your word? God, that anything that is of you, Lord, and according with your word, God, let it penetrate our hearts. God, help it to stay there and help us to meditate on these things, Lord. Would you transform us and make us look more like Jesus this time? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So two points. What is the Bible and why should we meditate on it daily? All right. Point one. What is the Bible? As I alluded whenever, I think most of you all, yeah, ever, almost everybody was here when I did the Mark overview. Uh, I think that was last week. At this point in project, all the time is converging. So 
a lot of people think that the Bible is a lot of disconnected books. 66 books is disjointed saying different things. And you, you read books like Genesis and Exodus and Mark and Philippians. And though they're written separately and at different times, they actually compile. They actually make up one big book called the Bible. And the Bible is simply this. It is one unified story about God's redemption of fallen, sinful, rebellious people through his son, Jesus the Christ. One unified story talking, teaching, and proclaiming God's redemption of a fallen, sinful, rebellious people. And the way that God's going to accomplish that is through his son, Jesus the Christ. So I want to give you a little makeup of the Bible, okay? The Bible is made up of 66 different books. If you didn't get it, I'll get you that at the end. Just, just come up to me and ask. 66 different books. And inside of this Bible, there is so many different types of literature. All right? You have historic. You have narrative. You have law. You have poetry. You have wisdom. You have the gospel accounts. You have letters, you have irony, you have tons and tons of different genres of literature. My English majors are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about right here. I'm nerding out. 40 different authors, okay? That's a lot of authors to make up a book. Written in three different languages, over three continents. And this is what's amazing. All of this was compiled over a span of 1,500 years. Think about that. 66 books, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, 1,500 years. You tell me, if you got that many people to write one book, I think it would be very disjointed. I think it would be lots of contradictions, lots of things that don't make sense, that don't add up. And yet, with all that complexity, with all that diversity, the Bible, one unified story telling one central message about Jesus the Christ. All of it converges. All of it points to Jesus, the Messiah. There is no other book in this world with such diversity, with such complexity, and yet so much unity. Faultless. No error. No, no problems. No book does that. There is no book like it. It's the best-selling book in all of the world. And there's a reason. There is infinite wisdom to be found. God's wisdom, God's word is truly unparalleled. So the, I want to break this down into kind of four parts, okay? If, if I can help you get a grip on the Bible, the, the big story of the Bible, I'm telling you right now, you can drop into any single book and make sense of it. Those books, you're like, man, Old Testament, I just don't know how to read those. Like, if you can just get a grip on this big narrative, I'm telling you, things will start to make more and more sense, okay? So if you will, think about the Bible in four chapters, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. Creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. Okay, let me, let me explain this very quickly. It's not we're going to spend a ton of time. I just want to make sense of this for you. Creation, Genesis 1 through 2, right? God creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the waters on the earth. He creates the grounds, the mountains, all of the land. And then day 4, 5, and 6, he fills it. He, he puts the stars and the planets. He puts the animals on the land. He fills the sea with sea creatures. 
And then he makes man and woman in his image. God is actually dwelling with his people. Perfect harmony. No sin. No sweat. It says, just in the cool of the day, walking and fellowshipping with God. In the beginning, no sin. And then chapter 3, as we've talked about, takes a subtle turn. A twist, right? Man and woman, Adam and Eve, believe that they've got it all figured out. They're sadly deceived by the devil. They're sadly provoked by their own desires. And they say, you know what? We're going to rebel. We're going to do things our way. We think we are more wise than God. So they partake, they take up the fruit, and they sin. They rebel. And things go downhill. So I, I, chapters 3 through 9, you're probably familiar with some of these. You've heard of you know, Noah and the Ark, the Great Flood, right? Um, that's kind of like the, the climax of wickedness, right? Genesis 6, 5, God looks at the earth, takes a kind of a quote of the earth, and it says that the sinfulness of man is wicked. All of their thoughts, all of the intention of their heart is wicked, right? And then God says, I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to wipe everybody out. And you get that in chapter 9. The flood comes, right? But really for the rest of the Bible, you see this, the fall. You see the story and of sin kind of perpetuating, right? It gets worse and worse and worse. And then you have part three, redemption. And really, when you think about the fall and redemption after chapter three, they're kind of interwoven. And I'll give you a few examples. Israel, right? The, the nation of God. What happened? They rebel. They, they're like, hey, we love you, God. We love you. And then we, they don't get what they want. What do they do? They cry and they moan and they complain. And they say, we don't trust you. We don't want to be with you. And God judges the people. And at the same time, what's he do? He gives them a promise of hope, right? So you see the fallenness of man, but you see the redemption happening too. So really, fall and redemption is kind of the, like the, the two parts that are connected really through the, the beginning of the book and the end of the book. It's all about the fall and redemption. And the other example I gave you all last week uh, with, with the, when God judges the devil, right? Hey, you and your offspring, enmity, but he's going to crush your head, right? In the midst of judgment, you still see hope. So fall, I mean, creation, fall, and redemption. What about renewal? Renewal is after the Gospels in the book of Acts, right? Christ comes, he lives a perfect life, he dies, resurrects, proving that he is the, the sinless Savior, that he has come to free people from sin and death. And then the, 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 the rest of the book is pointing us two directions. It's pointing us backwards to look at what Christ has already done, key, done, past tense. And then it's pointing us forward to what God is going to do, Okay. So renewal is it's just it's like a ping pong. You're, it's gonna God is gonna keep reminding you of what He's done, and He's gonna keep giving you more hope of what's to come. So that as we live in a fallen world, though we have redemption already in Christ, renewal is coming for God's people, right? So if, if you understand those four pieces—creation, fall, redemption, and renewal—you can start to make sense of what you're reading. So when you read those crazy passages that seem so crazy in Isaiah or some of the minor prophets and you see this judgment, think, man, what does this teach me about the fallenness of men? And when you see those promises of hope and deliverance and you can try to act like you don't know Jesus is coming, think, man, what would it be like to think redemption is coming? And then when, as you read the Gospel of Mark, you are in redemption. You are in renewal, right? Like you get to see God's redeeming love on display all through Mark. 
So these are the four big, quote-unquote, chapters of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. Does that make sense? Track with me? Okay. So, let's use the remainder of the time to just look and think about this question. Why should we meditate on God's Word daily? Why should you continually get up and read Mark? Why should you talk about God's Word with one another? Why should you meditate and try to memorize it? We're going to camp out in 2 Timothy 3.16, okay? In verse 17. And it reads this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, we're going to break this down piece by piece, okay? All Scripture is breathed out by God. What does all mean? How much? Like 99.9%? Is that what you said? All of it. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I grew up in this church, so they, they told me, hey, you don't need the Old Testament. Like, you, you, just, you just read the gospel accounts. Is, is that what that means? Man, you, you don't need the rest of the New Testament. Like, it's, it's all the law, man. All you need is the Ten Commandments, bro. That's it. Is that what that means? All Scripture. Even those confusing ones that, man, I really don't think it makes sense and I don't understand it. Like, Brigham, are you telling me, like, when Israel is commanded to go kill other nations, you're telling me, like, that's profitable? <laughs> like, that's good? Yeah, I am. And I, I really am convinced that all of it is breathed out by God. Let me give you, let's look at 2 Peter, okay? This is what Peter writes. You know, they're, they're, I'm sure as you've talked to your friends, here's the thing you've heard. Man, the Bible's just written by men. Like, bro, you can't trust that thing. Like, it's just written by people. And in part, they're actually right. Like, the Bible is written by people. Newsflash, I hope that's not like, whoa, I thought that was a lie my whole life. It is. But here's the thing they don't understand. Second Peter says this, knowing this first of all, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. What does that teach us about this? Going back to my original point, 66 books, 40 authors, three languages, 1,500 years, three continents. These people weren't in a room together uh, coercing a story to give to people to convince them. No, no, no. This thing has no error, no fault, no blemishes. Why? Because that, yeah, sinful people wrote the scriptures, but guess what? The Holy Spirit carried them along. That is why it is faultless. That is why you can't figure out a problem with it. Because God Almighty was behind it the whole time. So yeah, do you see some different penmanship by Paul and Peter? Of course you do. They're real people. But this is why they preach and teach the exact same thing. And it, 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 it's perfectly together because it's united by God himself. All right, let's look at the next section. Profitable for teaching. What does it mean that the Word of God is profitable, profitable to teach? It means that it's helpful or advantageous or valuable. So think about, think about this. How is God's Word helpful? How is God's Word profitable? What does Jesus say about the world? He says it's full of what? What? You know? Darkness. Okay? And why is it full of darkness? Because it's full of sin. And what does Jesus say about us? He says we're blind. And then he says there's a lot of people out there who are blind 
trying to be gods to more blind people. So put this image in your head. What's it like to have a blind person leading a blind person trying to say, hey, follow me. I know the way. That doesn't make sense, right? And if the world is full of darkness and everyone, who's been in a basement where it's just like, I mean, not like the little light, you're like, ah, I see something like pitch dark. Have you? I mean, how many times do you just like break your shin and you're just, you're kind of like groping around like, where's the wall, right? It's because you can't see. But when the light comes on, it's like, oh, praise God. Like, I was about to eat it right here, dude. Right? Okay. You need light, right, in darkness. You need light. Why is it profitable for teaching? How can someone see who is walking around in darkness? They need something helpful. They need something valuable. And something valuable to someone who's in pitch black darkness, we take for light, we, we take for granted our street lights. But if you're ever in a place where there's no lights, I promise you, you'll be very, very grateful for light. Here's what God says about his word in Psalm 119. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a guide unto my path. And he says in the following verse, great peace have those who have your law. Nothing can what? What's it say? Can make them stumble. Make them stumble. What is your fear in darkness? It's falling on your face, right? Or falling into a ditch that you don't even know is there. When you are walking in a well-lit place, you're not going to stumble. When you can see, you're not going to fall over, right? So how is God's word profitable for teaching? It's going to be a light. It's going to be a God. It is going to help you see who Jesus is, and it's going to help you see how to live for him. So why else should we meditate on God's word daily? What's the text say? For a reproof. It is profitable for teaching, and it's profitable for reproof. And we don't really use this word, so what's it mean? Well, some translations would render this verse in the original language rebuke, so profitable for rebuking. But you could also, uh, you could also make it say profitable for proof or testing, like an evidence. Like the word of God is profitable to, to, to bring evidence, right? Or to, to rebuke us. Let's look at another text to explain this. Hebrews 4, 12, 13 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So think about that, a double-edged sword. So when it goes in, it's, it's, it's doing damage, okay? <clears throat> Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. That's some deep stuff, right? Joints and of marrow, that's deep. And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Ooh, don't like that. And no creature is what? Hidden from his sight, but are all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. When Adam and Eve were exposed, they were what? Naked and ashamed. Not naked and unashamed. When you're exposed, there's something about you that you want to hide, right? They were afraid. Why? Because they were naked and ashamed. What does God's word do? It splits us like a nut, right? It discloses what's in there. We say, oh man, like I... You know, I'm not mad at you. And then you read the, this text and it talks about anger. You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was in there. Like, I'm furious with this person. Why? Because God's word is opening our heart. It's disclosing what's truly in there. It's discerning what's really in our minds so that you can see. And what Adam and Eve should have done, instead of fleeing from God, they should have ran to him for mercy and grace, right? But they ran from him because they did not understand who he was. God wants to expose God wants to rebuke us so that, not that we feel condemnation, so that you will come to him. He wants you to see your sinfulness, not so that you flee from him, 
but you flee to him in confession and repentance. God's word that is living and active discloses the intentions of our heart. It exposes our sin and confirms the infinite gap we know to be true between us and him. But God corrects us and refines us like silver and gold to make us look more like him. So God's word is profitable for reproof. It is profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for correction. Now, reproof and rebuke and correction are very much overlapping, right? But there are a few things that I think are helpful to distinguish. Correction can also mean, think about it like this, restoration or to to be made right again, to be in the right state. Uh, Think about improvement of your life or your character. It's correcting the things that are kind of out of whack. Um, God's word leads us to repentance, right? So let's look at Romans 12 too. I hope this is a familiar passage for many of you all. Paul writes, do not be conformed to what? The world. But, so contrasting, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How does one renew one's mind? How does one transform one's mind? It's to think, right? This is the place of intellect. It's the place of contemplation. God wants us to be in his word so much that we are constantly thinking. We are constantly, think about washing. We're washing our mind afresh each day. We are renewing our minds afresh so that we're not transformed by the world, but we're conformed by God by God's word, into the image of his son. So God's word is profitable for correction. And hear me say this. The world is trying to conform you to its image. Whether you, whether you think all those things are like, oh, it's not a big deal. Trust me, they are. But the word of God is trying to do the opposite. It is trying to conform you into righteousness. And we're going to get to that here in a second. What else is God's word profitable for? Training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. What does this mean? Training. Uh, The world, your flesh, these these desires you have, just these impulsive desires, the devil. You know what they're trying to train you in? Ungodliness. They're trying to train you in unrighteousness. They're trying to train you to make impulsive decisions that you think, ah, this is going to be so satisfying. And then you do it, you're like, dang. Who uh, who has already went to cookout? Raise your hand. (laughs) Who has been so full? Is Logan in here? Good. He's not. He will. He would rebuke me for this. Uh, he loves sugar. Uh, who has went already? And you're like super full, and you're kind of like, I'm just gonna hang out with people, right? That's like the classic. I'm just gonna hang out with people. But then you go, and everybody's drinking that shake. You're like, oh, it's good. But I, I just came here for the fellowship. And then you go get it, and then you're like, gosh, I'm miserable. Like I thought that was gonna be so good, but I feel terrible. Has that happened to anybody ever? Just that literally happened to me day one. And then I ate a tray on top of that. It was pathetic. Uh, so I think this is just public repentance. I'm sorry. I need help. But what's, what's my point? Sometimes that milk, I'll use the example of a milkshake. Sin, it seems so satisfying. It seems to give into the flesh. It's going to feel so good. But what does sin do? It always overpromises. It says, come to me and I'll make it. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. And then it under delivers every time. Training for righteousness. What is the world trying to do? It's trying to train you to make impulsive, unrighteous, ungodly, unwise decisions. But what is God trying to do to train his children in? He is trying to train us in righteousness. 
One of these will be your training ground, just to be very clear. One of these things will rule and train you up in the way. The world, your flesh, and the devil, or King Jesus. And we will either look unrighteous or look righteous. And one of the ways that God does it is he uses his word to do it. The word of God helps us to renounce ungodliness. All right, think about this. Think about Jesus' words again. He says on the Sermon on the Mount that your eyes are the what? Do you know? The lamp of your body. And if your eyes are full of darkness, what happens to the body? Your, dark, your body becomes full of darkness. But if your eyes are full of light, looking at things that are wholesome and good and edifying, what happens to the body? The body is full of light. The world is putting ungodly things in front of our eyes every day. The world is putting ungodly things in front of our ears every day. The world encourages us to indulge in promiscuity and sexual immorality. Um, through its advertisements, movies, and music, the world encourages us to indulge in our appetites. You've got commercials every five seconds with a burger or a pizza or this or that, or this new beer or this new drink or whatever. Uh, you've got buffets, right? All-inclusive resorts, which I love, so don't hear me. I'm not being you know, fundamental legalist. You can do those things, but we gotta, we got to be cautious, right? There's, there's no limit where you can drink and eat until you're so full, you're miserable. Our music, our friends, our families, and movies encourage us to do what? Encourage us to be rude and crude with our humor. That seems so harmless, but is godless. The world is trying to train us to think that vulgar language isn't, that's not a big deal, bro. Well, at least you didn't say GD, you know? Like, that's not a big deal. And it's trying to make us think and desensitize us to say, oh, this is fine. But it's actually godless. So how does a person put these things away? How does a Christian see transformation and victory in these areas in a dozen more? First thing, the Spirit of God has to, to work in an individual's life. There is no morality that you can just will yourself to be a better person. The Spirit of God must train, transform our heart. And then second thing, God uses His Word. Let's li- listen to Titus 2. What does it say? For the grace of God, so this is particularly talking about Christ's redemption, the, the, the mercy of God, but I think this is very applicable to the Word of God. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, not just the one to come. The Word of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. As we read God's Word, as we see its central message, redemption through His Son, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our hearts and our minds start to change. Our desires begin to change and become more and more aligned with God's desires. So God's Word trains us to be righteous like Jesus is righteous. It trains us to live an upright life in the midst of a crooked generation. So what does righteousness mean? That is just a state of right being. That's a state we ought to be in. That's a state pre-fall. In the first two chapters, no sin. The condition that is acceptable to God. That is what the Word of God is trying to make in us. It's trying to produce in us righteousness. Why else is God's Word profitable? God's Word is profitable so that the man of God may be what? Complete and equipped for every good work. What does it mean to be complete? Complete could also mean fitted. So it's, uh, I'm fit to do this. 
It can mean I'm adequate to do this, or it could actually mean holistically like perfect, right? So God is using his word, which is profitable, to make us complete or fitted to do good works. We are being made more like Christ, not so we need to sit and do nothing, but to do good for God and good to neighbor. God calls us to do good, to live for him and to live like him. Think about Jesus, okay? I hope this is going to be a common theme for you all summer. Look at Jesus. It's going to be the answer to all of your questions, I promise you. (laughs) He came not only to preach the word of God, but do what? You're already seeing it. You read Mark. What's he doing? He's healing people, casting out demons. He is loving people. He just invited Levi. This, this tax collector who rebelled against his own people and is defrauding his own people. And what's he doing? He's eating dinner with them, hanging out, loving on them. Now, I'm not saying go cast out demons and all that. What I am saying is, though, you're going to see Jesus live a righteous life. And righteousness looks like loving and serving others. Listen to me. If you read the Bible every day, if you get through your Bible in a year plan, if you can check those boxes and nothing changes in your life. But all you did is say, hey, I got through it. I've been reading my Bible. You don't understand it. You're not applying it. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. If you read God's word every day and it does not propel you to love your neighbor and to serve those around you, to love the marginalized, to help the needy, to love the widows and the orphans, then it's arguable that you don't understand what you're reading. God's word is not just to puff us up so that you can walk out of this project and be like, let me tell you about Mark. I'll tell you everything. I can, I can give you the outline. Oh, that parable? Easy. But yet you don't love people. You don't serve people. It, God is not changing your heart to look more like his. Then you're, it, it's, it, you're missing it. Because why? God's word helps us be equipped for good works. The Christian faith is not just an intellectual faith. It is a faith that moves us to love people and serve people. That is one of the greatest indictments on Christians, right? Oh, you say this, but you do this. And then hopefully the the, the city is seeing at Walmart, Chick-fil-A and other places. No, no, no. This is what a Christian looks like. Though we're not perfect, don't miss here, man. I want to put a a yoke on your back that is going to break you. But... We are to exemplify Christ's likeness. Why? Because we look to him and we understand his word and apply it. Now, let me make one huge distinction that cannot be misunderstood. Okay? This is crucial. Listen to me, please. We are not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. Let me say that again. You are not saved by good works, but you are being saved for good works. Let's look at Ephesians 2 really quickly to make sense of this, okay? For by grace, that's a free gift, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, what? It is the gift of God. Once again, it has nothing to do with us. Not a result of what? Works. Why? So no one can boast. It's not about you. It's not about what we bring to the table or we can boast about it. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Huge distinction, guys. Our salvation hinges on that that understanding. You are not saved by what you do, but you are saved to do. 
Does this make sense? I'm, I'm, I'm tripling down because I do not want you to walk out mishearing miss me. God is forming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, through several ways. One of them and one of the primary ways he's going to do it is through his word. So let us give ourselves to God's word because it is profitable. It is going to teach you. It is going to open your heart and disclose your sin. It will lead you into repentance. It will show you the way. It is the light unto your feet, a guide to the blind. Okay. Let me pray, and then we're going to take a brief break, and then we're going to jump into the, the training portion. Okay? Sound good? You still with me? All right. Let me pray. Father, we come before you encouraged and convicted, God. We come before you so thankful for your word. And, uh, Father, we, we, we praise you that you did not leave us in darkness, God, that you sent the true light, your son, Jesus Christ. And that the word of God is like a lamp unto our feet. God, thank you for not leaving us in darkness. God, help us to be men and women of your word. Help us to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who, who sought the scriptures day and night to see what Paul was saying, whether it was true or not. God, help us to mine the depths of your word because your son is in it. Father, help us to apply your word. Help us not to be people who just are puffed up with pride and arrogance and knowledge, God. That does nothing for anyone. But God, help us to look like Jesus and love our neighbors, to serve our families, to administer grace and, and forgiveness, to be merciful people, God. Help our character and our conduct be such a witness that you open up countless doors this summer for us, Lord, to share the hope of Christ that we have. God, we pray that you would bless the remainder of this time, that you would help us uh, be trained to understand and apply your word rightly, God. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2023 Summer Training Project, hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of the North Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.